But good morning. As Dave said, I am Stephen Bailey. You can call me Steve. That is totally fine. I work over in North Haleden, New Jersey um, with high schoolers. Um, that is my life. Monday through Friday is helping kids um, try to understand the Word of God a little bit better. Um, I don't want to make them, I, not that I don't want to, I can't make them masters in the time that um, they're in my classroom, but you know what, I can get them curious about what God's Word actually says and get them investigating the Word on their own. Um, I wanted to take a little poll here and see um, how many people in here are, because I'm going to call out the two kids in the back, how many kids in here, how many people in here are in the ages of 10 to 15? Raise your hand. Are you under, are you in the 10 to 15 area? Awesome. Who here is in the ages of 15 to 20? No one? Okay, oh. okay yeah, <laughs> there we go. Uh, 20 to 25. 25 to 20, 25 to 30. That's me, so I'll raise my hand. 30 to 35. There we go. 35 to 40. 40 to 45. Okay, we'll stop there. And then plus. <laughs> yeah, plus. Round of hand. Applause to plus. So hi, it's nice to see all of you, and I feel very welcome here already. Um, so this fun fact, um, this is my first preaching experience outside of my mom's church or my job at school, and not to disqualify those experiences. But it's a little different at my mom's church where I'm preaching to people who, like, you know, watched me, like, you know, take my first steps and maybe even change my diapers. And then it's also very different from when I'm at the high school and the kids are struggling to find out, oh my gosh, who can preach at chapel? Um, let's go ask the Bible teacher, as if I'm the only one who can preach God's word in the facility. And so they come and say, Mr. Bailey, would you have the honor of speaking? Yes, I've spoken like three times already this year. Fine, I will do it. Let's go, <laughs> you know. And I love doing it, don't get me wrong. Um, but this is an exciting experience for me, just because like it's outside of a known community, and you're welcoming me into what's like the stranger community for both of us right now. Like, I'm a stranger to you, but you're also strangers to me. And it's exciting that we all get to know each other in this. And I wanted to take a moment and pause on that interesting thought, because the interesting thought that I've been reflecting on in that is that um, of how people tend to see me through different lenses. You know, at my mom's church, they tend to see me in light of my childhood and how I grew up. I am Stephen Bailey. I'm the pastor's son. You know, they saw me do piano recitals and, you know, play Great is Thy Faithfulness and whatnot on the piano and the tone chime bells. At Eastern Christian, I'm not Stephen Bailey. I am Mr. Bailey, and I carry all the authority under that name with that position. Um, you know, like they come to me and they say, they don't say, hey, Steve, what's up? They say, Mr. Bailey, would you mind taking some time tomorrow to like talk with me about something, about my homework assignment or X, Y, and Z? It carries authority and carries a weight. I am not Mr. Bailey to the people that change my diapers, okay? It's a very different, different relationship as it should be. But at the same time, my students would dare not call me Steve Bailey because I'm not their friend, you know? I teach them and that's my job to bring them up and raise them up in um, scripture, you know? Um, if they call me Steve Bailey, I go, ha ha, funny joke, okay, let's go, you know? <laughs> um, and here, I'm Steve Bailey, guest preacher with template face number seven and probably voice option number two. It's still a little bit random, but even though I get to take the time to get to know you in this space. So ultimately, I kind of like to imagine that my home church sees me a little bit with a pair of like scuba gear goggles, you know, in a sense. They see like a sense of who I am, that they've seen a whole picture of the, my life landscape. Um, just, oh, hold on a second. Do I have it on? Oh, there we go. Oh, I did two. There we go. 
They see a whole picture of my life landscape, you know, they can see clearly, but they're still seeing me through the lens of like the goggles and the water, you know. Um, they get the essence of who I am, but they, they're not my friends in a sense, so, and, but they're also people older than me, but they also see a holistic picture of who I am, but they also kind of only know me in relationship to who my dad and my mom are, you know. My students definitely see me with like the, the drunk goggles on, you know, they put on the goggles and they see a completely distorted sense, you know. They see like a good picture of who I am, but they're also, like I said earlier, they're not my friends, so, and I'm not gonna go ask them their, their advice, you know, because that's not right, you know. They're wonderfully developing, um, partially formed brains are not trustworthy for any life advice that I could ask for, you know. And then you guys, you guys are probably viewing me in the sense of a little bit of a blindfold on and trying to get a gauge on who this guy is. Questions like, okay, here's some bad jokes and no Bible yet. This is clearly the illustration part of the sermon, you know. Is he just eating up time? Did he actually prepare? You know, questions like that. And whether it's me or someone else, we often view people with different filters over our eyes. We tend to see our life through our experiences like a pair of goggles. And sometimes these goggles are really good and they help us survive through certain situations. So in a sense where you see your life through the lens of how you need to live in your workplace environment, you go and you live that life and then you come home and you take on like the pair of goggles for your family life environment, you know? But sometimes they can also influence us to make survival decisions that can make lead us to bad decisions. So we wear a pair of goggles that can actually influence how we see another person that might not actually represent who they actually are. And there, are, our lenses are actually affecting how we love another person. And that can be actually pretty um, unfortunate. Sometimes we are blind to, sometimes, uh, sorry, unfortunately sometimes we have filters that influence how we want to see our lives as well. So when we take a moment to look at the grand picture of who we are, like who is like Stephen Bailey or who is Pastor Dave or who each and every one of you are, we can often look at our own lives with a sense of these filters, like filters of I'm wearing the glasses of successful, I'm wearing the glasses of unsuccessful, you know, I'm wearing the glasses of, you know, family person, or I'm wearing the glasses of I do not have a family, you know, in a sense. And if we wear these lenses, they can do different things to us. You know, sometimes we can be blind to our purpose, like when we wear a blindfold. You know, sometimes we can see our community through a distorted lens, or we can see our own identity through like the tinted and distorted lenses of wearing a pair of scuba gear goggles. You know, we don't realize it, but often we look at our lives as if we're wearing different lenses and we can keep them on. And if we keep these on, they keep us from embracing the fullness of Christ. When we invite God's perspective into our identity, our community, and our purpose, we can walk in better step with the kingdom of heaven. We can have peace in our souls and know how God has created us. My favorite movie, and I think arguably the, one of the best DreamWorks movies of all time, is The Prince of Egypt. Simply because the music score is literally the best. You know, you can't tell me you don't weep every single time they get to the crescendo of there can be miracles. You know, they're like, Shh, there can be miracles, you know. Or when they hit, um, Jethro sings the song, look to your life through heaven's eyes, you know. In that point in the movie, Moses is in a moment of doubt and shame over what he's committed in Egypt. And Jethro takes him aside and invites him into seeing his life through the perspective of God where he takes his like, look at this tapestry. You only see, you see yourself as a single thread, but it's part of a marvelous design that God has in store for you. He says specifically, how can you see what your life is worth or where your value lies? 
You can never see through the eyes of man. You have to look at your life through heaven's eyes. We cannot trust the sunglasses, the goggles, or the blindfold anymore when we look at ourselves or others. We have to trust God's eyes upon us. Otherwise, we can get distracted, react in sin, and frankly, get lost. God's eyes reveal our value and intention in our identity, community, and our purpose. And today I want to show you what it looks like through the life, uh, what it looks like to look at our life through the eyes of God. Um, or actually, specifically, I want to show you what it looks at, like to look at life through our own eyes through the story of Jonah this morning. So what it looks like to not look at our life through heaven's eyes, specifically. So today, we're going to be seeing life through God's eyes. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, um, thank you so much for this opportunity and what you've provided for here in this space for us to get to know you and know your word. Would you settle our hearts so that way we would know you and know you richer and know you fuller and more fuller than we've ever known you before? We love you and we praise you in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right. So Jonah. So depending on how old you are when you grew up, you probably see jo the story of Jonah through different perspectives or lenses yourself. You know, maybe you see it through the lens of like maybe how it's classically told Jonah righteously throwing himself into the sea and then being swallowed by the whale. Or maybe you're like me and you can't help but imagine vegetables portraying the story of Jonah. Um, you know, that is just my lens. Every single time I think of the story of Jonah, it's a vegetable, it's an asparagus, okay? Or maybe you remember the dramatic scene at the end where he has preached and he's finally obeyed God and he proclaims to the Ninevites, repent, you know? Um, but there's some things I want to kind of help you understand about the book of Jonah that we often kind of miss. Um, Jonah is actually not a good prophet. Um, Jonah is not a reliable prophet at all. He is literally, it's a story of a prophet who's literally doing the bare minimum of what God asks, you know, and then begrudgingly doing it. And you see that from the start all the way to the end. You know, he goes, he, the second that God invites him to go onto this whole journey to go bring the message to the Ninevites, first thing he does is, I'm going as far as, away as I can away from what God has asked me to do. Um, the next thing you see him do is that he's sleeping underneath the ship when all of his shipmates are in chaos and in fear, you know, and they're, they say, hey, what are you doing asleep? And then after, after that, he says, it's me. I will sacrifice myself knowing that, like, hey, if I toss myself into the sea, maybe something will happen. But you know what? I'm still not doing what God has asked me to do. He goes in the belly of the whale. And there he says, you know what? Maybe I was wrong, God. You have me in a belly and a whale. Okay, sure. We'll try this thing out. And when he goes and he does it, he walks for three days. He has three days to proclaim God's message in Nineveh. And then he doesn't. And all he says is, repent. You know, that's basically the summary of his sermon. And God is more faithful in that really, really bad sermon than Jonah is to actually making sure that he relays the message of God's repentance to the Ninevites. So Jonah is not a good prophet. And we actually see this elsewhere in Second Chronicles where he's not really mentioned as a great prophet either through his story. Um, but the point of Jonah's story is not to talk about Jonah and how incapable he is at delivering God's message. It's actually to talk about God's mercy and faithfulness. So I kind of want to start off with that um, perspective from the start, okay? Um, and Jonah's story is often told with these really ironic moments to make a point that even, even prophets get it wrong. And one of the things that Jonah specifically gets wrong 
is seeing how God is using him in his identity and how God is using him through his community and through his purpose. And so I want to get to this first part right here. Is the first three verses of Jonah, where he says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, you know. And what's beautiful about that phrase is that when you would hear someone's name as son of Amittai, you know, their father is like, Amittai is a Hebrew word for truth, you know. So someone's father was named Truth, and they were a great truth teller, or maybe perhaps he was a prophet himself, you know. So Jonah, son of Amittai, yeah, his father would tell the truth, and that was a spiritual reality that was then stuck as a name for him. So you would hear that and you should be encouraged. Like, oh man, Jonah's going to reveal the truth to the people of Nineveh or to the Israelites. And so God says to him, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. He, after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. You know, and it's really interesting right here. Because I have to wonder if Jonah had actually, why, why Jonah's not trusting God? Like surely if he's like a prophet, the son of like a man who's named truth, you know, a son of another prophet in a sense, like why wouldn't he trust God that God was going to be faithful to him to go and do that? And the reality is that Jonah didn't have a secure sense in trusting God and what God had spoken over him. Because if Jonah was, had trusted what God had spoken over him, Jonah would have been secure in his identity as the prophet to deliver this message. It's Jonah's insecurity in, in his identity as the son of truth that he's actually enabled to go deliver this message to the Ninevites from the get-go. He hears the Lord say this over him, and Jonah says, okay, cool, I'm going to go and jump the other way. You know, sometimes our identity, if we're... If we have our identity on feeble ground, we can get into some really big issues in the first place, you know. If we're not secure in knowing that we belong to the Lord and everything that we are, we can actually disrupt what God is inviting us to do because we disqualify ourselves or we turn and run in fear. If we don't believe that God has prepared believes that if we don't believe that God declares that we are his children, and if we do not believe that as his children God has laid out a path and that a tr the path is trustworthy, we can sometimes, you know, like uh, decommission ourselves from following in with what God has asked us to do. If we do not first know that we are his children, we cannot go forth and do the things of God. You know, identity is a really big thing in our day and age. You know, for instance, like if you get into the personality tests, like the Enneagram, you know, people can be all these different numbers and everything, or like Myers-Briggs. But some of the trouble of the personality tests that we have is that sometimes, instead of using it as language to go help and understand someone else, people use it and say, like, no, now you know how I react, so you have to go and serve me and listen to me when I do this. Or they typecast themselves as, like, oh, I'm such an Enneagram 5. I would do something like that. When it's like, no, you're, you're a human being created in the image of God. You have these qualities similar to the Myers-Briggs, INFJ, or Enneagram 5, you know. These are, this is language to help you understand yourself. When we, worship, when we worship our identity in a false sense and we put other things in the placement of the phrase child of God, we get into some hairy situations. So even if I identify myself as a teacher before I identify myself as a child of God, I'm not actually stepping in line with the kingdom of heaven. Because then I'm concerned, like, 
okay, I, if I'm a teacher, I need to make sure my students are paying attention and engaged in class. I need to serve everything in my ca capabilities to make sure that these students are engaged into what I'm learning and that I make good lessons and the lesson plans are perfect. And if they're not perfect, who am I? But if I'm a child of God first and out of my childhood, I move into teaching, suddenly nothing has to be perfect, but suddenly everything turns beautiful because then I'm able to hear the voice of the Father as I'm teaching through probably the worst lesson plan I've ever made. And I can engage with the Holy Spirit with a student. When we start with our identity first, we can see kingdom transformation. But in Jonah's case, you know, we have to recognize that if Jonah saw his identity through God's eyes, he would have trusted God's direction. I want to invite you to trust the Lord with your identity and who you are as a child. So that way you can trust his direction for you. But of course the blunders of Jonah continue. Because he doesn't just stop at, you know, not seeing God's perspective on his identity, but also God's perspective on his community. Oh, there we go. There we go. So it says in Jonah 1, 13 through 16, Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. So this is in the context of what's happening when he gets on the boat. Um, they're sailing off to Tarshish, and the Lord literally throws a huge storm at Jonah's boat. And there's a huge sea that comes, and uh, the boat is tossing and turning. They're throwing off cargo just so that way perhaps it can be lighter, so that way they don't get over, like, turned over. And they're throwing, and they're doing their best to row back to land. And what's actually interesting is that um, sometimes when we imagine that they're throwing the cargo off the ship to lighten the ship, we imagine that that's the attempt to like, you know, okay, maybe the storm won't like topsize our boat if we do that. In reality, they're probably offering the cargo to whatever sea god that they're trying to worship at the same time. So they're trying to devote their allegiance to the sea gods, be like, hey, sea god, stop the storm, take this fish, I guess, or this cargo or this cow, whatever. Please let us live. Because the Bible is clear that every single person on this boat worships their own God. And so they're just praying out into the, the sky, into the sea, into the land, trying to get the attention of whatever deity to stop this storm. So, because if you know how boats work, you actually want a heavier boat, so that way the boat doesn't flip over too easy in the middle of a storm. If it is too light, it will just capsize real easily. So they're not lightening the boat in order to keep steady. They're lightening the boat in order to get like a God to pay attention to them. So they've put themselves into more danger by not trusting God on their own. And so they're doing their best at this point now to row back to land. They said, okay, the gods didn't work. Let's now use our own efforts. This is the community of men on the ship. And then the sea grows even wilder than before. And, then they and so then that's when they cry out to the Lord. But it's important to notice that before this moment, before this moment, while all the chaos is happening, Jonah sees the issues, and he decides to go to sleep on like some part of the ship. He sees the people that he has hired out to take him away from the Lord's plan, and he sees their suffering. He sees the, like, the chaos they're experiencing, and he says, I'm going to take a nap. If I sleep through this, this will be fine. It's a very selfish decision in the middle of the story. He decides to sleep instead of engage with the community that's before him. And then the captain of the ship even finds him and says, what are you doing? Literally, we are in a huge storm. You need to call out to your God so we can see if he will listen to you. And then that's when Jonah gets up. 
They try to row back to land. And then this Jonah gives this huge speech where he's like, I am a Hebrew and my God is Yahweh. And like he describes like how wonderful Yahweh is. But then there's this irony of like, yeah, but you're not listening to God and what you're doing. And so they finally cry out to the Lord. They finally cry out to God. So in Jonah's disobedience, his community is now calling out to God. They say, please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Jonah says, hey, you should throw me overboard, and then the storm will end. The people on the boat realize God's power, realize that if they throw a man overboard, they're also killing a person, and that's a little dicey. So they decide, you know what, Lord, if you are truly God, have mercy on us for what this man is asking us to do. We don't want to kill him. He says that if we kill him, then you're going to stop all this. So I guess we're going to do it. We trust you more than we trust this man. And so they throw him in, and they see the faithfulness of God. But Jonah doesn't get to experience these people actually turning and repenting. Because at this point, the men greatly fear the Lord, and they offer to sacrifice the Lord and made vows to him. So isn't it funny that Jonah is trying to run away from the will of God, the hand of God, and he can't stop and embrace what God is doing in the souls of these men. That if Jonah had engaged with what God was doing, he'd be able to partner and see how God is trying to bring these men into his family. He's trying to save these men. And these men decide to turn their attention and their worship to God. And it's not really because of Jonah saying anything fancy. It's because when they asked God to show them mercy um, for this man's foolishness, God showed them mercy. And you have to wonder, if Jonah had not been selfish, what opportunity would have arised for him to engage with the community around him and his crewmates? If we're not attentive to our community, you know, we can lose track of what God wants us to do. If we don't see our community through the lens of how God sees them, we can lose track of what the mission is. If we don't see our neighbor as someone who's also a child of God, we can say and do some really awful things to them. I know one thing that I've learned in my classroom is that if I don't check in on how everyone's doing, then, you know, I could actually miss something in the room. If I don't take the intentional moment to say, ask God one, ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, how's ever, like, show me and reveal to me, like, how to engage with these students today. But then, too, I need to make the intentional effort to actually ask them how they're doing. So what I do in my class is I play, I play a little game, a little motion game to detect, like, give them, get an emotional vibe. So I say, thumbs up, thumbs medium, thumbs down. And it's pretty simple. Like, thumbs up, I'm having the best day of my life. Thumbs medium, you know, it's not the best, it's not the worst, we're kind of vibing. Thumbs down, it's a bad day, you know. And then I add some more hand signals on there and they like it. Um, One of them is impending doom. Um, I make the joke, it's not just a great Christian heavy metal band, but it's also the feeling of a test coming on the horizon. You know, it's lingering in your soul, you know it's coming, you know, but, and it's hanging over your head, or you have something to do in the future. That's impending doom. Then we also have uplifting hope, like, hey, something good is happening that's carrying me throughout the rest of the day, and I love it, you know. And then there's, like, walking with presence, you know, like, you know, it's not either good nor bad, but, you know, I really feel Jesus with me today. And you can feel whatever you want to feel in any of those experiences. You could be having the happiest day of your life, but you got a test next block, and it's giving you anxiety, but who cares? It's a great day, you know? Or you could be having a test next block, and it's a bad day <laughs> at the same time. 
Or you could be having a bad day, but you know Jesus is with you, and so everything's all right, you know? And so I give them these hand signals just to get a sense of where they are before they come into my classroom. Because if I don't, I miss an opportunity of what God might want to do in me to bring these kids closer to the kingdom of heaven. When we pause and we acknowledge our neighbor, and when we pause and acknowledge their belovedness in Christ, we're able to partner with God a lot better to see the kingdom opportunity before us. So it starts with centering our identity, right? I'm a child of God. And then it's extending outward and saying, and so are you. And then being able to move forward from there. However, that's the right answer. However, good old Jonah, if he saw community through God's eyes, he would have seen the pain and also the redemption of the sailors. If we don't see our neighbors through God's eyes, we miss out on huge opportunities to walk with our neighbors through their pain, but then also to bring them into the redemption of Christ. We need to see our neighbors through God's eyes because it also brings opportunities for forgiveness, for reconciliation. You know, it gives that moment where we can love our enemies the way that Jesus commands us to do, that gross, frustrating experience of, I have to love the person that has done evil to me. Jesus invites us to do it because at the end of the day, the person you consider your enemy, God considers also beloved and he wants in his kingdom. And so we get to the last part of Jonah's story, well, one of the last parts, where Jonah goes in the whale, right? He gets swallowed up by the mercy of God. There's this beautiful little poem in the middle where he says, oh, great are you, Lord, I am in the whale, and I, you see me in the depths. And <laughs> then in God's mercy, God is like, you didn't really say sorry, but sure, I'll spit you up because you're willing to do what I want you to do right now and what I need you to do. So in the belly of the whale, we see there's a little glimmer of hope. Okay, maybe, no, maybe he's going to like, you know, move from his identity as God's child. Maybe he's going to see and recognize his community. And so it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, uh, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nothing else. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all we know of Jonah's message. You know, you have these awesome sermons written by Isaiah and Jeremiah about calling Israel into repentance and the nations into repentance, and these beautiful poems, you know, you know saying like, oh, do this, and God will show you mercy in his steadfast love. And Jonah, who is a skilled prophet, apparently, and a, that being said, being a skilled poet because prophets gave their prophecy through poetry, Instead of saying anything wonderful, he says, 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And look how good God is. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When God saw that they, what they had did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Jonah is not a self-aware human being. You know, he is not aware that he is at the mercy of God. God considers him a child. God wants him to see and acknowledge his community. God has put him on this grand mission and grand quest to go proclaim the gospel to the worst people that the Israelites can know. You know, VeggieTales uses the language that they slap people with fishes, and they did way worse things than that, you know? And 
Jonah, in the midst of all this, doesn't prepare anything. He doesn't give any heart to anything. He walks through the city, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's no message of hope in that. There's no call to repentance. But like any missionary, you, like the Spirit of God is more at work in someone who's ready to repent than you are being the messenger. And so Jonah doing the bare minimum activates something in the Spirit of God and the people of Nineveh turn and say, we need more of God. And something changes in the city of Nineveh, not because Jonah is thriving in what God has asked him to do, but because God is just so faithful and God is so compassionate and God is so merciful. And the entire city repents. The king repents. The cows repent. They put on sackcloth, which is the Jewish expression of repentance where you put on sackcloth and ashes describing how you have lived in death and sin. And they turn to God and they see that God relents his destruction and is utterly merciful and compassionate. It's easy to get lost in our purpose. It's easy to get narrow-sighted in seeing our purpose in light of what we want in our desires. You know, we can have good desires, you know, like, hey, I want to go to college. I want to get these degrees. That's one thing that my students definitely have in their mind. Like, I'm going to, the common dream actually is, I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to go get this medical degree. I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z, you know, or I'm going to go to like Stanford, or I'm going to go to all these big Ivy League institutions and we worship like the idea of something is sure, tons of people go and do that, but that's not everyone. And that's okay. Sometimes we wrap our identity with our purpose. That if I am not this, then I am not worthy. If I don't get my PhD at age like 27, who am I really? You know, if I don't get my, if I'm not working at a hospital by age 30, who am I really? Or we get in line with our purpose and calling. We get in line exactly with where we want to be and where God's placed us. And we give a really bad sermon and say, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Because there's still parts of us that are dissatisfied that have not aligned with how God sees us. If we aligned ourselves with how God sees us, we would look at our purpose not through the lens of what jobs we did, but through the lens of what mission God has asked us to go embark on on this earth. Maybe we'd see that God has called us specifically to an age group that we need to go love better no matter where they are. Maybe God says, hey, I'm calling you to be a doctor, but if you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be my doctor. And you need to listen to what I ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to do healing, and that healing is going to push your boundaries in the hospital. Maybe he's called you to be a lawyer, you know, he's, or invited you to take on the position as a lawyer, but he says, hey, you're going to be a lawyer. But while you're a lawyer, you're only going to be a defense attorney. And I need you to defend them with my righteousness and justice. Maybe that's the call he has on you. I don't know. I'm not God. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I know that if we look at our life and our purpose through our eyes, we can often look at them through the lens of evil and destruction and just like despair. When the reality is, is that God has planned everything so specifically that when you really look at how specific things are planned in each and every life on 
planet Earth. There are not, like, there's not a couple of unique, brilliant lives. There are seven billion, eight billion unique and brilliant lives that are filled with purpose, that are filled with the unique task to go cultivate this earth in order to bring the kingdom of heaven. God wanted disciples of all nations because it needs all, we need all the nations in order to proclaim the majesty of Jesus. And he, every person in this room and every person in this city and every person in this nation, God has a plan and purpose for them. The question is, are we going to do it? And are we going to do it believing that we're his children, deeply loved, and the people around us are also deeply loved? We can't be like Jonah. Because if Jonah saw his purpose through God's eyes, he would have seen the beauty of Nineveh's repentance. But you know what he does instead? He goes up, he finds the highest point in the mountain. You know, he pitches down and he waits for the fireball to be cast from heaven. Even after seeing the hand of God save him, and even after seeing the city repent and turn away from their evil, he's still not looking through the lens of, that God has for him. He's not looking through heaven's perspective. He's looking through his own selfish perspective. He's still looking through his own pain. He's still looking through his own brokenness and wishing for death on his enemies. And that's when God comes and questions him. It's like, what are you doing? Do you, like, what, what's going on here? And Jonah actually yells at God and says, I knew you were a merciful and compassionate God. What a weird diss, right? Like, I knew you were merciful and compassionate. And God just comes up and says, yes, I am. That's the point. It's like, why are you angry is the real question. Didn't you know I am merciful and compassionate? Didn't you know that this is exactly what I wanted to do? Is have a moment to show mercy to a people who didn't deserve mercy. Ultimately, when we take the moment to see ourselves through God's perspective, our identity, our community, and our purpose gets aligned with his kingdom. And we need his eyes. We can't be like Jonah. We have to turn to God. And Jesus shows us how to do this best. You know, at the end of the whole book of Jonah, Jonah still doesn't get it. Get it. God tells him he's wrong, and Jonah still wants their destruction. At the end of the book, all we learn is that Jonah still won't see that God is just merciful and will only act out of his mercy to all people. He doesn't see his life through God's perspective to be a prophet of truth, to love the sailors of the Ninevites better, or that his words would bring redemption to the Gentiles. Jonah's actually a tale of warning. Like, don't be like this guy. Here's what's not to do. Because at the end of the day, having a bad example is still wisdom on how to get to God. And Jonah's acts like a bad example. And then the irony is that we see the Gentiles who didn't have an opportunity to follow God before Jonah follow God better than Jonah does. And if you were a Jewish man sitting at, or woman sitting and listening to this story, you would have been like, huh, that's funny. The Gentiles are better at this than the prophet. And that's the point. We need, to, we need to be called into alignment to see ourselves through God's eyes in our identity, community, and our purpose. <laughs> Jesus did this best. 
And Jesus has this beautiful moment with God. I want to, there's my little picture there of Jonah being a little mopey boy there. But (laughs) Jesus has this beautiful moment with God, you know, where he really, really sought out the perspective of God, even though he was already God. When Jesus is baptized, he sits, he gets washed over him. If you read Luke's account, it says that Jesus goes and prays. You know, if Jesus is praying, that means he's seeking the perspective of God in anything. You know, and he hears God speak over him this phrase, you're my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. And this is a good phrase to take a moment to listen to. Because the beauty of this phrase is it works two ways for Jesus. So one, God, the only father that Jesus has in his life at this moment, you know, as a man, is affirming his relationship with Jesus. That Jesus, he says to Jesus, I love you, my child, and I am satisfied with you. And then two, God also uses this phrase to describe what Jesus' purpose is. Each line in this phrase links up with a verse in the Old Testament, and when you put it together, you get a beautiful message. So when it says, you are my son, There we go. It's referring to Psalm 2. When it's referring to my beloved, it's referring to Genesis 22. And when it says, with whom I delight, it's actually re-quoting Isaiah 42. And the the Psalm 2 section is talking about the king of Israel, the Messiah. Genesis 22 is talking about how Isaac was called Abraham's beloved. And the story of Isaac is that Isaac had to walk as Abraham's beloved to the place that he would be sacrificed. And then, with whom I delight in Isaiah 42, it talks about how God's chosen servant would bring freedom and justice for the entire world. And so when you put it all together, really, you get this beautiful message that God is saying over Jesus. Affirming his identity, he also declares the purpose of Jesus. You are the Messiah, who is sent to die for everyone, and it will bring them freedom. It's from Jesus' identity and purpose spoken over by God that Jesus creates his community of disciples. Jesus takes his identity and takes that purpose and he goes and embraces that community and says that the love of God is over you. He empowers the disciples to go increase and build his community further. He dies, he resurrects, he ascends to heaven, and he says the mission still goes on. Build the community. And it's from Jesus' identity and purpose we have our community, the church. And I don't know if you notice this, but Paul also calls the church beloved as well. There are moments in the Bible where Paul will stop and say, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints. Or he'll say, boop, let's see. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in you, in the that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul chooses to identify the church by the identity that God has spoken over Jesus. Because when we are in Christ, we are also God's beloved children. So we as the church, we get our identity because of the work of Jesus on the cross. We get our community because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And we receive our purpose because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Because the work of Jesus on the cross is ultimately the only perspective that God wants to see over each and every one of us. Identity, community, and purpose. If we don't look at these things through the eyes of God, 
We might as well be walking blind. We need his perspective. He alone has the truth in his eyes, so let his words be grounding, be the grounding agent in your soul. But I want you to take a moment and think, what are you, what are you hanging your identity on? Is it being right with your job or status like Jonah? You know, is it affiliations you have with different social groups out in the world? Any identity that's not centered on Christ, calling us his beloved, becomes a false idol for us. Any other identity must be secondary. Do you see your community or do you believe that you could do it alone? Do you follow the command, go love your neighbor as yourself? What would it take for you to see your neighbor this way that God sees them? As a blessing and an opportunity to be a blessing back to them. Don't believe the lie our culture says when it values being an individual. God made us for community because he himself lives in community with the, fa- with the Son and the Spirit. Community may ha- has maybe hurt you before in the past, but it's only in community that we can experience healing from community wounds. And then do you feel like there's no purpose to what you're doing, that your job is a punishment or your dream job from college is never going to happen? Have you asked the Holy Spirit what his job for you is on this earth? Do the Holy Spirit's job. And let all the degrees and all the work you do here just be additions to what the Holy Spirit's task is for you. So I want you to take a moment in God's presence and ask these things in your soul. Let me actually have to skip through a little bit. Oh, I forgot about this slide. That's okay. So here are the questions I want you to ask. What am I hanging my identity on? Do I see as God is untrustworthy with anything? Have I been a blessing to someone? Who is blessing in my life? Do I have someone in my life that I can pour into or is pouring into me? If not, who can I ask to be my community? And do I trust God to provide community? And then finally, Holy Spirit, show me who I'm called to love. What is the action you are calling me into? There are many things in our lives that can keep, be a lens to keep us from seeing God's perspective of us. But we can also live in God's perspective of our identity, community, and purpose. And then we can see the deeper beauty of the kingdom of God unfold before us. Let's take a moment to pray. So Holy Spirit, thank you for this time. Jesus, we have been misaligned in how we see ourselves as children and who we've engaged with and how we've engaged with people and what you've asked us to do. Jesus, any goggles or lenses that we have over our eyes, would you take them off right now? Let your kingdom come and your will be done. Would you realign us so that way we could partner with you better? Would you make us faithful ambassadors of your presence? And Jesus, would you just remind us that we are your children and you are so in love with us? So we love you and we praise you. And we thank you for this time. In your holy and precious name, amen.